My good people, greetings, how are you, how are you feeling, what is happening, what's going on, what's the latest and greatest, hope everybody's in good spirits and health as we kick off another week, in fact the final week of summer, that's right, fall commences on Saturday the 21st, and with new beginnings comes a new podcast as I'll deliver everything that's happening in the world of sports here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast, as this is your host J Reels. For my first timers listening in, welcome aboard, thank you so much for downloading and listening to this content, and I hope you come back for many, many more in the weeks and months to come. And for those who have been with me on this journey from episode 1 to now 91, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, September the 16th, in the year of our Lord, 2019. Here's what I have on tap for you. The USA Men's Basketball Team, the FIBA World Cup, 7th place, I tell you. Looks like it's getting worse and worse for the USA Men's Basketball Team, but with the Olympics coming next year... Not that I have the cure-all for it all, but you'll certainly get my take on that and what the future lies for men's basketball. I'll also talk about everything that's happening in Major League Baseball as we're now two weeks away from October, from the start of the postseason, the hunt for Red October as I like to call it. And it looks like the Mets will not be a part of that as they are currently four games back with 13 to play. But you'll certainly get my discussion on the Mets as well as Pete Alonso. And I have a very interesting theory in reference to him in regards to an old Met phenom who certainly didn't take the mantle of being a hot prize prospect and turning it into what Pete Alonso has done so far in the early part of his career. So you'll get my two cents on that. We're going to start off this podcast recapping week two in the NFL where there is never a dull moment. It seems like week in and week out as topsy-turvy, as crazy, as whatever it may be, whatever adjective you want to throw in there, There's never a week where you're just kind of like, ah, well, this team won, that team lost, oh, the usual, this happened, whatever, so on and so forth. After two weeks, can we separate the good teams from the bad teams? It seems like in this league this year, yes. But the storylines that I take out of week two are threefold. One, the officiating, where the Saints again get robbed of a play that should have been a touchdown, where Jared Goff goes back to pass, and it was as clear as the L.A. sky and the California day that Jared Goff fumbled that football. But for whatever the reason, Walt Anderson, who's one of the more respected officials in the game and someone who I like as a referee, blew the whistle way too soon where Cameron Jordan's not even at the 50-yard line where they're blowing the play dead, but good for him. He ran the whole thing out. You never know. Don't want to take it for granted. But here it is in a game where it was 3-3. Now, Drew Brees was out of the game at this time with that apparent thumb injury, and we've come to learn today that he'll be out six weeks with that right thumb. When he was going back to pass and it looked like he hit Aaron Donald on the arm or in the hand. And for whatever reason, it certainly affected it to the point where you didn't see him for the rest of the game. Teddy Bridgewater came in and filled in admirably. I mean, he didn't like the world on fire. Let's call it as we see it. But still, even at that point, late in the first half, 3-3, 10-3, does change the complexion. Does that mean that the Saints are going to go on the win? Of course not. But certainly 3-3 looks a lot, or 10-3 looks a lot better than 3-3. And you never know with the momentum, St. Defense, who knows what could have transpired after that. So when you have that play go down, when you look at the Chicago-Denver game with the two roughing the passer calls, and we all know roughing the passer, you breathe on the quarterback, and you're going to get a flag. And we understand that the league has to protect its hottest commodity, and that is the quarterback. We 1,000% understand that. But to think that they didn't get any home calls, and one of those calls was just an abomination. I mean, what could you say? And on the other side of the spectrum, we're talking about Walt Anderson, a 17-year referee in the National Football League. And you have a guy, I believe his name is Adrian Hill, who's in his first or second year as a referee. And mind you, 
you've seen a lot of turnover over the last few years because a lot of these guys have gone on to retirement or have gone to the cushy job next to the analysts in the booth, whether your name is Terry McCauley, whether your name is Gene Sterator, whether your name is John Parry, whether your name was Mike Carey. You know, these guys all of a sudden leave the field and you would think they would get into some other line of business that this is the last thing they want to deal with as a professional. But no, whatever it is that they're, these networks are paying these guys, they're certainly looking at it from the standpoint like, well, hey, I could just do this in the booth. I don't have to worry about being on the field. Where it seems like more often than not, it's the obvious. I mean, we could pretty much figure at home, oh yeah, that's a fumble, oh, that's an incomplete pass, oh, that's personal foul, whatever it is. So I don't need to have this referee or former referee detailing to me what it is as far as it being a completed pass, a fumble, interception, whatever. So the officials, they need to get their act together. Because this isn't like the issue that we had years ago when the officials were on strike. And remember you had that whole fail Mary out in Seattle with Green Bay and how that all came to pass. And a week later, the officials came back from the picket line and all was right in the world. And we understand there's going to be some human error in this game, that human element, which I think should be a part of. Not as egregious as what you saw in the NFC Championship game last year. That we understand, but it seems like they're just going to be so either reliant on replay or the officials are going to be that much more under scrutiny because they have replay in their back pocket. And to me, it just it ruins the fabric of the game. Now, I'm not watching all these games. I understand I'm not on top of, oh, what happened in Denver yesterday. Certainly the play in L.A., I mean, come on. I mean, that is as clear as day, like I said before. How could you miss that? So the officials, I don't know what they need to do, whether they're in New York, California. I would assume that the headquarters here in New York, they would have to get the officials, rally the troops to say, hey, we need to do a much better job here. And not only that, but whatever these guys won two years in a league or even 17 years, they just need to get these calls right. And we get that replay can be too reliant, especially with the pass interferences. And we've seen that on a couple of occasions. One in the Steeler game yesterday, which certainly benefited the Seahawks and the other a small play in the New England-Miami game where they finally, get ready for this, they finally overturned the call for the Patriots where Josh Gordon had picked off a pass that was supposed to be intended, well, it was intended for Philip Dorsett, but he impeded the runner's angle towards Dorsett, so therefore it was a pass interference, and the Patriots are known for that, as you've seen time and time again. I mean, I saw that the first game of the year, and there were like three or four instances that they should have called a flag on that. Would that have made a difference in the game? Absolutely not, because the Steelers were dreadful. But it looks like that's going to be a call you're going to see a lot here in the weeks throughout the rest of the season. Because remember, the pass interference call or the rule is only for this year as of right now. So the officials need to get their act together, and that's all there is to it. Because the games right now, we get that the league and the teams have taken their time with the way the preseason has gone and some of these offenses that the players aren't in sync just yet and the product will get better well once the product does get better the officials have to get better so that's number one number two I'm going to look at that Jacksonville Houston game and I understand people are going to look at it Jay Reels why are you talking about that game who cares the only reason why I bring that up is because Jacksonville at the end at 13-12 instead of going for the extra point on the road they actually went for the win and Leonard Fournette another case in point people are going to look at the replay there and now that's a call that the flag isn't going to be challenged. They're going to look at that in the booth. And to me, 
as close as it was. And who knows if Fournette was able just to get another inch of momentum or a push, whatever it was, that probably would have been a two-point conversion and would have left Houston with a victory. But you cannot overturn that because it was irrefutable. The evidence was not there that Leonard Fournette broke the plane of that goal line for them to take the lead at that juncture of the game. But I like that. We've seen that time and time again over the years. I'll never forget the Raiders did that in New Orleans a few years ago where they took a two-point conversion when they were down by one. And you've seen that at times, especially with the bad teams. But I like that Jacksonville took a chance because they know that their season right there was hanging in the balance. They knew that even if they were to have tied the game, chances are they probably would have gone into overtime and would have lost the game. Of course, we don't know that. It's all speculation. We get that. But anytime you're on the road, it's always tricky because you want to play for the tie. I get that. I understand. But you also have to look at it from the standpoint of Marone. He's always going to be aggressive. He probably thought Fournette was going to be the guy that was going to punch it in, despite the fact that Gardner Minshew, who's become a folk hero now in the NFL with the mustache and him just filling in the way he has for Nick Foles over these first two weeks. It's become a thing where if teams are going to go for the juggler there and we get it, it's 50-50. If he makes it, Marone looks like a genius. And if he doesn't, he's going to be a goat and he's going to be panned from pillar to post. Me, I thought it was a good move despite the fact that they were on the road and if they were a home team, chances are that you probably would do that more. We have the crowd behind you, a little bit more momentum. Be it as it may, I didn't look at the move as a bad one on Marone. Division opponent, you want to go in there for the win, so be it. And knowing that they probably would have a long season there in Jacksonville because with Foles on the shelf for a considerable amount of time, and not only that with Minshew, who knows when the clock's going to strike 12 with this guy. Now, I'm not trying to say he's come in there and he's lit the world on fire, but he certainly hasn't gone in there and has looked like he doesn't even belong on the field. He has shown some leadership. He has shown some gumption, shown some toughness. So credit to him. So that's number two. The third thing is the injuries, especially with the situation that's gone on in New Orleans, as I mentioned before, with Drew Brees, six weeks. They're not going to go for surgery at the moment. It seems that they're going to hold off on that, see where the injury takes him. I'm sure he's not going to probably grip a football for some time. Don't know the prognosis yet. I don't know if it's a break. I don't know if it's a hairline fracture. Don't know, but he's going to be on IR probably which they want to avoid because if he's on IR, he has to be on there for eight weeks as opposed to the six, which is being reported right now as far as his timetable is concerned. But the other news coming out of Pittsburgh, where yesterday and watching Ben Roethlisberger, when he made that throw and you see him like hold his elbow, you think to yourself, wow, you know, nobody hit him. It was a non-contact play. And he did play a couple plays after that initial throw. But then Mason Rudolph comes in, did an admirable job. I mean, he was fine, 12 for 19. He started one for four. He finished 11 for 15. He threw a pick, but it wasn't his fault. Dante Moncrief, thank you. Another drop, which that led to points and pretty much, not going to say put the game out of reach, but the Steelers were fighting uphill after that. But with Roethlisberger now, today, MRI shows that he's going to need surgery. He's done for the year. Don't know the extent of it. Don't know if he needs uh, Tommy John surgery, which is that ulnar collateral ligament that... We've seen pitchers from time and time again get done. It seems that infinitum. Now with Roethlisberger, from what I've heard, that if it is a situation where they're going to have to operate on that ligament, it's not a deal where he's going to be on non-active, or I should say inactive, for 12 to 18 months. 
Throwing a football isn't like throwing a baseball. So it's quite possible with surgery, rehab, etc., that come training camp next year, he'll be ready to go. So that's a good thing. Now, the other thing is, if you're a Steeler fan, I'll get to the Steeler game in a minute. But when you look at Mason Rudolph, now this is his time. Here's a kid that has shown that he took the number two job, the backup job where Josh Dobbs was traded late in this preseason. He's a guy that was a third-round pick. A lot of people thought he could have been first-round talent. He made some good throws there, showed some poise. Now, of course, he's going to have his bumps and bruises and his growing pains. But this is going to be a very interesting time. And as sad as it is for me today to know that this Steelers season is done. There's no way they're going to do anything of any sort this year. Now, to think Mike Tomlin has never had a season where he's coached under 500 any of his teams in his 12 years as Steeler coach. But this is going to be the year. And before the Steeler fans get crazy, oh, they should tank for two. And uh, Please, let's not get crazy. Now, they're going to win some games. Who knows what they're going to win? I mean, I can't sit here to tell you, oh, yeah, they're going to go 4-12 and 12 or 6-10. and 10. Who knows? They just have to play the games and see where it falls. And how I look at it is, is that if they get a decent draft pick, then fantastic. And I don't care if the Steelers go 0-10 and, and I want them to go 1-15. and 15 or 0 and, They're not going to go 0-16, but that's my point. And that's how fans get. Fans get just crazy when it comes to that. But let's see what this kid has. Let's see if he can not only play the position, but play it at an effective level. And who knows, maybe we have our quarterback in the wings because as we all know, Ben Roethlisberger is right now on the 18th, close to the 18th hole. He's probably on the 17th hole of his career right now. So let's see what we got with this kid. Hopefully he'll be our future. And if not, who knows? They may end up drafting a quarterback next year as it is. So that's what you got with the injuries. And that certainly is just two big blows for playoff and especially Super Bowl aspirations when it comes to the Saints and the Steelers back-to-back. So those are the takeaways as far as Week 2 is concerned. As far as the games are concerned, you had some good games. I mean, a lot of them were just dreadful. Uh, do we even need to talk about New England and Miami? 43 nothing. And I get that all the rage is going to be about that New England defense, about how they've outscored their opponents. What is it now? 76-3. to And we get that Pittsburgh. We understand even without Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell, still potent offense. Who knows? Even with Roethlisberger last week, was that elbow barking then and he just didn't say anything? And then it came to roost yesterday. Who knows? But if anybody's going to take that Dolphin team by any stretch of the imagination seriously, then you're certainly watching a different sport than I am because there is no way that the Dolphins are anything of any semblance of an NFL football team, let alone a, I hate to say it, a Division One football team. And I get that the players could look at me and laugh and so on and so forth, but what you've seen so far from this team, forget about 0-16. What is that point differential going to be by the end of the year? And the sad part is, is that you got a kid that they drafted, or excuse me, they got a kid that they traded for in Josh Rosen who's never going to see the light of day. Because even if he does see the light of day and produces, even with the lack of talent that they have down there, and I get on offense, Kenyon Drake's a decent running back. Albert Wilson is a guy we know from Kansas City. Uh, He's a good receiver. He's a good third receiver on a team, as well as Devontae Parker. But nobody's going to look at that Dolphin team and be going to think of the Marx Brothers and Dan Marino. So with Rosen being traded for and knowing that he's probably not going to, he's going to see some time, you would think, as Fitzpatrick, he can't play as worse than he did yesterday. But what's going on down there, really, is there anything to dissect? 
And I get that New England is New England. And you can't knock them, and you got to respect everything that they've done. But let me see them play a quality opponent. And then maybe, just maybe, we could say, wow, New England's going to be unstoppable. As it is, they're probably going to be unstoppable. We understand that. We get that. You know, this is a movie we've seen time and time again. And chances are the ending's probably going to be the same it was last year and two years before that and the year before that, etc. But let's not get too crazy about what New England did yesterday and look at that as, oh, geez, the rest of the league better take notice and look out because I still got to see that defense in a big spot. Let me see that defense against Dallas, who they play later on this year. Let me see that defense against Kansas City, who, of course, they play later on this year. Let me let me see then. Eye test. Forget about metrics. Forget about, I don't want to hear any of that nonsense. The DPOY, the defensive, what is that? The DVOA, whatever it is. I'm thinking defensive player of the year. All those metrics that everybody just wants to sink their teeth into as if it's gospel. And to me, uh uh-uh. Eye test. That's what it's all about. So when you got that game, I understand the Saint-Ram game was marred a little bit by that call. I don't want to say marred is a little too strong. But we saw how that game turned out. The Philly-Atlanta game was thrilling last night, if you watched that. How Philly took the lead, went for two, and then Atlanta came down and scored Julio Jones on that fourth and three, and he got open up the sideline. You would think that that side of the field would have been a little bit more congested, but the Eagles certainly didn't contain a one Julio Jones, and the Falcons get away with a victory. So, again, these games certainly weren't of note where you could wrap your arms around and say, wow, it was just nonstop action throughout the league yesterday. Yeah, you want to look at what happened in Detroit yesterday, coming back to beat the Chargers? Are you going to get crazy about what happened with Green Bay and Minnesota, despite the fact that at 21-16, Kirk Cousins throws a bad interception off his back foot, you know, running, scrambling to his right. Obviously, that wasn't a good time to throw a pick there if you're Kirk Cousins, and we all know Kirk Cousins, he's that guy that's going to keep you in games, but he's going to go ahead and win you games more often than not. Well, you saw yesterday that that's going to be Kirk Cousins and his tenure, not only as a quarterback of the Vikings, but wherever else he goes after his contract is up. You know, Indianapolis, Tennessee, Indy comes back. I know Adam Vinatieri, he's been missing kicks left and right. Who knows? A lot of rumors about him possibly retiring sooner than later. But when you look at the slate, and even Tampa Bay winning at Carolina, that was a bit of a surprise. Now Carolina's 0-2. But when you look at what San Francisco did in Cincinnati, and we know the Bengals aren't that good of a team. When you look at the Giants, I know the Daniel Jones clock has now begun. Figuring Buffalo went in there two weeks in a row to MetLife beating the Jets and Giants. And Josh Allen, he made some great throws yesterday. I was really impressed by what I saw with him. I mean, does that mean he's turned the corner and now he's going to be an all-pro? No, let's not get crazy, but... A lot of the talk about him coming out of college that he had the big arm was just inaccurate, but he made some really good throws yesterday. And Buffalo, who knows if they're for real, and I'll get to them in a little bit. Dallas had that game in control against Washington, although the score may look a little bit closer than what it you know what it indicated, but still, Dallas looks like a machine right now. Chicago-Denver, we get that Eddie Pinheiro, the 53-yard at the end, and we know about the woes of the Chicago Bears kickers, especially going back to last year. But, you know, is that a game that you're going to jump for joy go crazy? And then you have tonight with the Browns and Jets. One of these teams are going to be 0-2, you would think, unless you get a tie. In this league, you never know. But with all the talk about Odo Beckham Jr. and Greg Williams, how he feels that 
Greg Williams' defenses go out to hurt people, and in particular him on that preseason game two years ago when he was a member of the Giants. Of course, Greg Williams refuted that, saying it's nonsense, our teams don't play that way, that's not our style, blah, blah, blah. Then you have the Sam Darnold mononucleosis, who, from the latest report, we hear that he's actually feeling better, that he could actually come back as early as week five against the Eagles. But with mono, obviously that's something that you've rarely seen in the NFL, and we all know that affects your spleen and some of your integral organs, that one especially. And of course, if he takes a hit there, God forbid, if he's not 100%, who knows what that could mean for his future. So the Jets really have to take caution with that. And I know Donald's going to want to get back out there, but I just hope and pray that he's truly 110% because the last thing you need to do is him take to watch him take a bad hit, writhing on the field, rolling around, and the next thing you know, he's just seriously injured to where he could possibly be career-threatening. And that's the last thing any fan wants to see, let alone a Jet fan who's been waiting for their star franchise quarterback since Joe Willie. But a lot of the games yesterday, despite everything I said at the top, topsy-turvy, unpredictable, all those things, and yes, rightfully so, but the games weren't really spectacular. Baltimore, all right, you want to say they won... Lamar Jackson, what he did with his arms and legs in the game, 122 yards rushing, 247 yards passing. You know, fantastic. Now, as we, you know, we look ahead to a week three, and week three is pretty much the same deal. Now, week three, pretty much your marquee game, your Sunday night game, is one that if the Browns win tonight, at least there'll be a little bit of juice, and it'll be the first Sunday night game, I think, Going back to when ESPN used to have the Sunday night package, and that was 1999 at home where they played the Steelers in an opening night and they lost 43 nothing. That may have been the last time they had a Sunday night game at home. So they have the Rams coming into their building next week. So you would think everybody in Cleveland's hoping for a victory tonight against the Jets and Trevor Simeon, who's the backup to Sam Donald, that they would go in there, win a game, so at least there'll be some juice in that building come 825 right there on the... Banks of Lake Erie, where the Browns, with all the hype, all the expectations coming into the season, at least that could come to a head on a positive if they could come out with a victory at MetLife tonight. But all the other games, when you look at it, the Texans and Chargers, does that tickle your fancy? Uh, these Baltimore, Kansas City, that's your the best one o'clock game right there. So that's one you're certainly going to keep an eye on. Two two and O teams. Your Thursday night game is Tennessee at Jacksonville. That's a whole hummer. Your Monday night game, Chicago at Washington. Eh, Snoozeville. And a lot of the other games, Jets are in New England, Detroit at Philly, Carolina, Arizona, Giants are in Tampa, Atlanta, Indianapolis, eh, maybe a B-minus, C-plus game. Miami at Dallas was the spread is 20 points, I believe, or 21-point spread. The Cowboys are favored. Buffalo at 2-0 playing against the Bengals. So, yeah, you do not have as many sexy matchups. I got Baltimore, Kansas City, absolutely. Sunday night game. New Orleans at Seattle. Obviously, that's going to lose a little bit of luster with Drew Brees out. So, not much to really look at when it comes to Week 3. But we all know that these games, whether it's a game of inches or because of a crazy call or whatever it may be, you know there's always going to be something. So, we'll certainly stay tuned as Week 3 is on the horizon. And two other things before I move on to baseball. 
One, going back to the Steelers situation in reference to the game yesterday. As I said before with Ben, Mason Rudolph, we know that it's going to be interesting how this quarterback's going to play here over the next 14 weeks if he stays healthy. We understand that. But with that being said, I think this team, despite missing its quarterback, and even with the quarterback there, there are too many red flags, not only with the defense, to a certain extent the offense, but with the coaching staff, that I wonder if Tomlin has lost his fastball completely. And one instance was yesterday in that game, at 21-19, I understand your inclination is to go for two there, but with 11 minutes and 16 seconds left, there's still plenty of quarter to be played. So for argument's sake, if they kick the extra point, make it, and it's 21-20, I get that a lot of the people in the stadium, they're going to boo the special teams off the field. And with that, rain boos on Tomlin. But guess what? To me, this was a classic first guess, and I get people going to look at it more as a second guess. But once they scored that touchdown, I thought to myself, there's plenty of time to go. I could see if there was less than seven minutes to go in the quarter where, hey, you don't know if you're going to get the ball back. You don't know if there's going to be an opportunity for you to even recoup those points later on. But you never want to chase points unless you absolutely have to. And in this case, like I mentioned, 11-15 to go, kicking that extra point, and with them scoring the touchdown right after that to make it 28-19, there's no chance for you to win that game. So... Let's just say, for argument's sake, they kick their, they kick their point. 28-20, they get the touchdown. Now it's 28-26. Guess what? Now you go for two to see if you can tie the game. Hopefully, somehow, some way, either win in regulation or even go into overtime and win. Different story. And I thought about that when I first watched it. So it wasn't a thing where after they missed it, oh, they should have went for an extra point there. No, I thought right in the moment. No, get the extra point, stop being cute, and that's it. And we get that Tomlin likes to take these two-point conversions. We understand his quarterback isn't there and some of the other talent that they've had in the past is not part of the special teams unit. But for them to take the risk there with plenty of time to go, and Tomlin is not known about this going back to his rookie year. All you got to do is watch that playoff game against Jacksonville. Not the one two years ago. I'm talking about 2007. To know that for whatever the reason, Tomlin is just uber-aggressive when it comes to these two-point conversions. And when he doesn't make it, he realizes that, I'm sure after the fact, that he probably should have sort of went for one, knowing that when Seattle scored the touchdown to make it 28-19, he pretty much shot himself in the foot for him to come back to either tie or even take the lead. So that's the deal with that. Uh, as far as the team's concerned, I mean, they're just, they've been awful. The defense is terrible. Their offense is sputtered. I get that Rudolph gave him a little bit of a lift yesterday, but, and the locker room seems to love him. He seems like this kid is going to get after it. They're behind him a thousand percent. So, as I said earlier, we'll see what happens. But as far as the team's concerned, they're going to go to San Francisco, and this leads into my next thing. I'm it, I normally wouldn't do this, and the reason why I stutter is because I can't even fathom to think that I would actually pick San Francisco in a knockout pool. But I'm certainly considering it, and over the next sixty seconds, I'm going to have to decide whether or not I'm going to choose this team. Because remember, I picked Baltimore to beat Arizona as they did yesterday. So now that I made it to week three, I could go the obvious route and pick Dallas. But remember, I can't pick Dallas again for the rest of the year. So I have to play this a little smart. The other route I'm thinking about going is Minnesota. After that loss, Oakland now, their first two games at home, they got to go on the road. And remember, forget about the spread. All Minnesota needs to do is win. And the more I'm thinking about it, I actually may pick Minnesota because Minnesota's a team that, right, they could be either on the fringe, they could be certainly in the mix of the division, or they could be on the outside looking in, depending on how everything shakes down. As we all know, 
unpredictability is king in the NFL. So with that being said, I'm going to pick Minnesota as my knockout pick for this week. I can't pick Dallas because, again, I'm going to need Dallas somewhere down the road if I happen to be in this thing long enough. And I get the the, per, the people out there listening are going to think, well, no, get the wins now and worry about that later on. And trust me, I did think about that. But hopefully I'll save Dallas for a rainy day and I'm picking Minnesota as my knockout. And that is your week two heading into week three in the National Football League. Now as we turn our attention to baseball and the wild card is now heating up. We're now less than two weeks because two weeks from yesterday is the final Sunday of the regular season. Baseball right now is in the home stretch. Not only to finally crown these division winners and we all know the Dodgers have clinched as they're the first team to clinch their division but the Braves are on the verge the Yankees are on the verge the Astros despite the fact that the A's they're playing lights out they're playing like they did last year and remember this team won 96 games and they've already won 90 games this year so give it up to the A's I thought they were going to take a step back this year and they haven't what that means for October is a different story because it seems like this team is built for the regular season but when it comes playoff time in October forget it They can't win a game to save their lives. But we'll kick off with the National League and the Mets. All you could look at over this past week was they knocked out Arizona. And to the surprise of myself and a ton of other Mets fans, because I thought that three out of four, I couldn't expect a sweep, considering it just came off of losing two out of three to the Phillies. But what they did last week was, I certainly didn't see it coming. Pete Alonso hits the two home runs there on Monday, and since then he hasn't even gotten a hit. And I'll get to Pete Alonso a little bit later. Wilma Flores, on his return, he gets a home run off of the Grom, a little wink before the first at-bat. Great ovation, well-deserved. But then after that, it was just all Mets as they pounded Arizona, especially in the Wednesday and Thursday games. Uh, Tuesday, they actually had to sweat out that game to win 3-2. But they win the back end, the sweep, and then when you look at the Dodgers series, what could you say about the opening night? Noah Syndergaard. That was all the talk early in the week with him and Wilson Ramos. How that battery is not working for him when it comes to his numbers. The splits are disparaging, to say the least. And and I should say, not only just disparaging from the, from that standpoint, but they're also the disparity is what I meant to say. But you can certainly disparage Syndergaard for how he's performed when it comes to having Ramos as his battery mate than Tomas Nito. And the Mets, they should have known better. They should have put Nito in there. And I get that it would have looked like they would have pacified Syndergaard. But this is the Dodgers. This is a team that you've had trouble beating over the years. This is a team that, as we all know, they're cruising to... They've already cruised to a division title. And right now, they're just pretty much setting themselves up for October to make a push at this World Series that they haven't been able to close the deal the last two years. So despite the fact that the Mets may have thought that, hey, eh, maybe they'll take it easy upon us a little bit. no, no, no. That wasn't the case Friday, as you saw. It's in the guard. The big blow there early on. Gavin looks in that three-run homer. And Syndergaard has not shown up here in these final few weeks of the season, which I think, and it may not come to a surprise to anybody, I think he's going to be gone this offseason. I could still see a trade where Syndergaard is going to be packaged for young players or talent, whatever it may be. And I know Brody's going to toe the line come the first week of October, he's going to say, hey, we're going to evaluate. Oh, he's going to be part of this team, whatever. Yeah, right now he's going to be part of this team. But let's see in November, December, January, will he be a part of this team? So that's going to be prediction number one. Rajai Davis was the hero there Saturday night. And then yesterday was a game that they needed to win in the worst way because the Cubs just pounded the Pirates into submission over the weekend. And the Brewers 
had a dramatic grand slam in the ninth inning from Ryan Braun, of all people. 6-3 down, and he hits a grand slam to keep the Brewers a game behind the Cubs for the second wildcard spot. And even though the Cubs, they go to play the Reds now, but they have seven of the last ten against the Cardinals, but it may be too late for the Mets. Because as their record constitutes it today, they're 77-72 and 72 just to get to 88. And 88 is no guarantee. They're going to have to go 11-2 and two these final 13 games. And right now the Cubs are at 81. So even if the Cubs go 6-7, and seven, which could it happen? Hey, listen, that's why they play the games. I get that. But the, the likelihood of that happening is going to be 1,001. Because the Mets, they have to go minimum 5 of 6 on this road trip. Where, mind you, they had the night game last night, so they had to fly to Colorado. Who knows what time they got in. I know in the broadcast, oh, they get in at 6, 6.30, whatever. To play an 8.40 game in that altitude in Denver for three days. They have a day off their Thursday, and then they go to Cincinnati for the weekend, which hopefully they could pound that red pitching staff to submission. Now you got to win minimum five of six, and then to come home, all right, you got the Marlins before. But just when you think you're going to pound the Marlins, they're always going to come up with a game where they're going to end up beating you. And then you got the Braves coming in. And I thought that if the Mets were still two games, even one game back of this wild card mix, my prevailing thought, and I don't know how prevailing this is, but chew on this, that the Mets would have gone to that final weekend alive for the wild card. Let's say that they were one or two games behind. And of course, the ghost of Chipper Jones, the ghost of, dare I say, John Rocker, the ghost of Brian Jordan would resurface somehow instead of being in the old lot at Chase Stadium, they would just slowly slither their way into City Field and knock the Mets out of contention. And even going back to 98 too, because remember, the Mets, they were in contention that final week of the season and they lose not only to the Expos, but also to the Braves that final weekend of the season and then their season went kaput. So it'd be fitting if the Mets were still alive a week from this coming Friday, which chances are they won't, but if they are, the Braves will somehow, some way, knock them off their pedestal, and we'll see in 2020 as far as the Mets are concerned. Can they make the playoffs, people? We get that the Padres, in that dreaded 2007 season where the Mets, as we all know, seven games with 17 to go, that the Mets that year, of course, for division, overshadowed the fact that the Padres had a four and a half game lead with nine to go. Where Colorado, remember, they won 21 of 22 and they lost in that game 163. The phantom slide at home plate, Matt Holiday, if we all remember that. Yes, can it happen? Of course. You can never discount it until they're officially mathematically done. But like I said, to go 11 and 2, the Cubs have to go whatever it is, 6 and 7 if they have 13 games left. And lest we forget, the Brewers are also in the mix too. So they also have to catapult over them to get to that second wild card spot. So tall order for this Met team now to somehow, some way, get all the breaks, win all these games, and then to have the Cubs and Brewers falter down a stretch for the Mets to get that second wild card spot. And wouldn't that be something? Not only if they just get to the playoffs, but to go to Washington to play, I mean, that'd be that's theater right there. I get for the people outside of New York and Washington, they wouldn't care. But Washington, they've never won a postseason series in their history to go up against the Mets. And the Mets have actually beaten them up pretty well this year. Despite that brutal ninth inning that they had where they had a six-run lead and they lost it, as we all know. 
But I'm getting too far ahead of myself. Just pie in the sky, a dream, just like all of my other sports teams that can't seem to come anywhere near a playoff or sniff a title or even sniff going to a championship round or World Series or Super Bowl. Uh, I tell you. So that's what you have with the Mets there. And who knows what they're going to do this week. I would think that, will they have winning road trips? Like I said, five or six people. I don't. If they go four or six. Unless the Cubs get swept by the Reds and the Brewers get swept too. And look ahead at their schedules. Right now, the Brewers have San Diego coming in for four. And that's a dead team walking before the Pirates come into their building. And then they finish up on the road at Cincinnati, not Colorado. So their schedule is cake. Milwaukee. Cubs, on the other hand, like I said, seven of the last ten are against the Cardinals, where they'll close out their homestand with three against Cincinnati and four against St. Louis before going to Pittsburgh, and that's St. Louis, so maybe Pittsburgh could pay him back for what happened this weekend. Philly, boy, they had a rough weekend losing the Red Sox twice, and the chances of them winning because, think about this, now they go on a brutal road trip where it's at Atlanta, at Cleveland, and they got to go to Washington for not four games, five games before closing out against Miami. So Philadelphia, you could pretty much write them off. And Arizona, they were written off last week after the Mets swept them because then they went home and they lost two out of three to the Reds. So that's what you got in the National League, people. It's pretty much going to be a two-team race for the second wild card spot. Right now, as far as the divisions are concerned, I believe the Cubs are three games behind the Cardinals. So let me rephrase that. 83 and 66 are the Cardinals. 81 and 68 are the Cubs. 80 and 69 are the Brewers. So they're all separated. Who knows? The Brewers right now, they do not play the Cardinals anymore. Obviously, they just finished playing the Cardinals over this weekend. And they made up a couple, they just made up a game. So they gained a little bit of ground. But it's pretty much going to be those two teams for that second wild card spot, or unless St. Louis falters. And St. Louis is scheduled this week as they have Washington for three and then at Chicago before they close out at Arizona and then home to the Cubs. So who knows? It's all there for the Cardinals. They control their own destiny. And if they do a number against the Cubs, they'll be fine. If they slip up here, obviously the Cubs could take over. And if somehow, some way, the Cubs slip up, especially against the Cardinals, then chances are Milwaukee will get that last spot. As of right now, I think I said the Cubs are going to take it last week. But that 7-10 games, that's going to be tough. And Milwaukee schedule's cake, although they got to go on the road to close out the year. But guess what? I'm going to stick with the Cubs. I'm not going to flip-flop my picks. So I'll stick with the Cubbies to get that second wild-card spot, and they'll go to Washington to play that wild-card game down in the nation's capital. There will be Tuesday night. And the American League... As far as the Indians are concerned, they inch a little bit closer. Now, Oakland has been on this roll. Like I said, they've won six in a row. They're a game and a half up on Tampa as far as the home field is concerned for the wild card. Cleveland right now is a game and a half back. So they're all separated there by three games where Oakland is 90 and 60, Tampa 88 and 62, and the Indians at 87 and 63. And here's what you got for those two teams. Cleveland right now is at home against Detroit and Philly, so hopefully they can fatten up there against that competition where the Rays will have two at the Dodgers before coming home to play the Red Sox for four. 
Now, Red Sox have to play spoiler, but the Red Sox, even with the two wins over the weekend against the Phillies, who knows how much they'll have left in the tank. And then the Athletics have Kansas City and Texas at home before they close out against the Angels and Seattle for four on the road. And Tampa, if we look ahead, they have two against the Yankees next week at home before going to Toronto to end their season, and then Cleveland at Chicago and at Washington. Listen, if you're going to get Tampa at Oakland, better that than going to Tampa because that game is going to be it's going to be rough even in Oakland because you're going to see the upper decks closed and the lower bowl is going to be filled. But let's see what uh, what happens here. We're down to the final two weeks. I would think those two teams hang on. I would like to see Cleveland overtake both of those teams, if not one of the two. But uh, we'll certainly see how that plays out here in the next couple of weeks. And also, as far as the best record is concerned, you have the Yankees, Dodgers, and Astros all pretty much fighting for that. Now, the Yankees and Astros are at 98 and 53 as of today, and the Dodgers are a game back at 97 and 54. So when you look at the schedules down the stretch, Yankees have the Angels coming in and no Mike Trout, who's been out with a foot injury. And Toronto to close out their home stand and their home regular season schedule before going to Tampa for two and then Texas to close out the year. Houston has Texas, two against Anaheim, at Seattle for two, and then four in Los Angeles to play the Angels. And then the Dodgers, two against Tampa, Colorado for three, and then they close out with San Diego and San Francisco on the road. So both of those teams, all three of those teams have Pretty easy schedules. And we all know if the Dodgers get the home field or get the best record, I should say, they'll have the home field throughout. If somehow, some way, Houston gets the best record in baseball, they'll have home field throughout. Now, if the Dodgers, of course, have the best record out of all three, whomever has the second best between the Yankees and Astros will have home field through the American League. And as we all know right now, if you're in the American League, First and foremost, of course, you would like to get the home field throughout, but you certainly would like to have that Game 7 in your building, although it doesn't mean much in this day and age, but we understand that if you're a fan of the team and if you play for the team, you'd rather have that final game in your building as opposed to being on the road, as to most of the Yankees could attest to going back two years ago in the ALCS when they played the Houston Astros. But if you're a Dodger fan, they lost Game 7 in their building too, Houston, so... I'm sure, hey, as long as they get to a Game 7, that's all that matters. So so that's what we got with the baseball. And then one last thing, not that I have a crystal ball or a magic wand, but this is something that I've actually thought about. And it's interesting because his rookie year is about to conclude. Chances are he's not going to make the postseason. But when you look at what Pete Alonso did this past week, especially with 9-11, Mets hosting at home against Arizona, him purchasing the custom-made cleats, not only for himself but for his teammates, commemorating the soldiers, the authorities, everybody who was part of 9-11, first responders, fire department, police officers, etc. For him to do what he did to commemorate that, to come from a 24-year-old rookie, and not only that, but everything he did during the Home Run Derby, All-Star Break, donating his money towards the military, towards the local law enforcement, I mean, that's just something that you hear veterans do. 
And here's a guy who, let's face it, despite the fact you have a guy who's been here for a few years and Michael Conforto, despite pretty much the face of the franchise when a guy, when you look at Jacob DeGrom, when you have a lot of these young players in the mix, whether it's Jeff McNeil, Ahmed Rosario, even J.D. Davis if you want to throw him there, but to have a guy who's a rookie, to the poise and everything that he's done, and despite the fact he's going through his most prolonged slump, which unfortunately comes at a bad time for the Mets, but here he is front and center in this, in this pennant race, and it made me think about a guy of yesteryear, a guy that in, in the 2013 season, when he made his mark at City Field, when Tom Verducci, the writer of Sports Illustrated, coined Matt Harvey the Dark Knight, where he started the All-Star game and pitched two innings, that he got out of a jam in the first inning and was lights out in that second inning, that yes, he did have a 9-5 and record with a 2.27 ERA, and unfortunately on August 24th, he had a poor performance against the Detroit Tigers to the point where he had to get Tommy John surgery. But everything leading up to that was a guy that certainly was on his way to superstardom. That was certainly going to be the guy that everybody looked to to be the leader of this franchise that has certainly been down in the dumps, especially since that team moved into City Field in 2009. But we all know what Matt Harvey and all the limelight, the hoopla, the press clippings, he certainly took that and tried to regurgitate that over and over and over again to the point that he felt that he was bigger than the team, bigger than New York, and even bigger than baseball to some regard. Where here you have this 23-year-old kid who, in these interviews that he's had, not only has he said he's living the dream, but he says that he did not have a backup plan. There was not a plan B. It was major leagues or bust. And now that he's here, and everything that has transpired this year. And listen, I'm not trying to say that this guy's start building the plaque, start building the statue outside of City Field. I'm not going to go as far as saying that. But you see the poise, you see the professionalism, and not only that, the humility that this kid has, that all he has to do is just stay healthy and continue to work hard. Who knows? That may take him to Cooperstown. Whereas the person... That six years ago, who burst onto the scene and certainly looked like he was going to be the next Tom Seaver, flamed out, fizzled out, and is pretty much nowhere to be found on the baseball universe that you would think, thank goodness, that the once dominant pitcher known as Matt Harvey, who we thought was going to be the franchise, part two, but now it looks like we have that in our first base of number 20, and we could only hope and pray that he continues to be on this path and doesn't succumb to the press clippings, to the attention, to all the hoopla that surrounded a one dark night. And we can only hope the polar bear will live on and be a part of this fabric and a part of this franchise for many, many years to come. All right, let me get to the, it's not even NBA, it's the men's basketball team, the FIBA World Cup, where the men's team ended up in seventh place. Did I watch a nanosecond of this? No. Do I even care? Absolutely not. And this isn't to knock Greg Popovich, the players that were on this team this year. But let's face it, this is the B team. And I'm not trying to say that even if you had the A team there, whether it be James Harden, whether it be Russell Westbrook, whether it be Anthony Davis, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, the whole list. Can't say Kevin Durant because he's hurt. But even if you had the A listers there, 
could they have guaranteed victory? You never know because the world has come to be a lot better and a lot more competitive than it has been in years past. And we've seen that. Even the Olympics in 2008, we'll go back as far as that, where Kobe had to take over that game against Spain in one of the classic final games that we've seen in Olympic history. But be that as it may, unless they're going to revamp this team on the fly, and I don't know if these guys were placeholders for next year's group in 2020 for the Olympics, but I would think that that's going to be the team, if this is going to be the team moving forward, you would think that there's going to be some new additions, especially after what happened just the, the last few weeks here. And I'm not going to get crazy because I could care less about the Olympics. If you've listened to me, whether it's on this podcast or even when I was doing internet radio, the Olympics to me, for those three and a half weeks, once it's come and gone, no one cares. And especially when it comes to the men's basketball team because they've won pretty much every year. And I'm not going to look at it next year and be like, oh, with the arrogance of USA. Because again, I could care less whether they win the gold, the bronze, silver, or they come in last place. But the reason why I bring this up is because with the Olympics next year, and I'm sure there's a lot of people thinking, is this going to be our best team? What can we do to avoid this? Well, I'm sure there's going to be some changes. I'm sure there's going to be some tweaks. I don't think the team that you've seen here, and four of the Celtics are on there. I mean, so whether you're Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Kemba Walker, Marcus Smart, and I'm not trying to kill them, but we all know this is, again, this is the JV. Until the varsity shows up, then we'll see next year, moving forward, what they're going to do against the competition. So if anybody's going to get wrapped up and get so crazy, and I don't think a lot of people are, but it's newsworthy. Seven places, not like they got a bronze, or they end up in fourth, or even fifth place for that matter, seventh. So that's what you have there. And as far as Joe Johnson is concerned, I got to give him some props because here's a guy that's been out of the league. We all know he got that fat contract in Atlanta, six years, $120 million, played the back end with the Brooklyn Nets. Looked like that was going to be it for his career. He played with the big three Ice Cubes League early on in this spring into the summer. And parlayed that into an NBA job where he's going to be playing for the Detroit Pistons. And good for him. So the big three, I don't understand. And I haven't watched the second of it either, so I can't, not, a, not that I'm a shill for the league, but it's great to see somebody continue to stick at it to the point where he's able to get that one last contract. Granted, it's $2 million, And you would think that Joe Johnson, for his sake, that he was able to save a lot of that money. But his love for the game parlayed that into an NBA job, and hopefully he could contribute to a team where right now is it expected to do much in the East? Nah. Remains to be seen. They didn't make the postseason last year. They got swept by the Milwaukee Bucks, but we'll see what happens there as the NBA season is now just a month away, if you could believe that. I believe training camp starts opening up, if not this week, early next week, so get ready, Hardwood fans. The NBA's coming, and with that, we'll have a lot to talk about, certainly in the podcast in the weeks to come when it comes to what's happening on the hardwood. All right, to conclude my hero and zero of the week, my hero of the week is Sean Livingston. He is the former Golden State Warrior who, of course, played on these great teams over the last five years, winning three titles. Prior to that, the Brooklyn Nets. We all know that he suffered that gruesome injury as a member of the LA Clippers when he was drafted out of high school many years ago. Well, to think he's finally hanging up his laces and sneakers and calling it a career at the age of 35 a lot of people knew coming out of high school that this kid looked like he was gonna be the real deal at six seven six eight was long 
A lot of people have compared him a little bit to Penny Hardaway because of his length and his size. Didn't have the same playmaking ability, but the comparisons were there. And with that knee injury, certainly had to change his game, had to come back and rehab. And just to get to the back to the NBA was certainly a chore unto itself. And here he is going off into the sunset at the age of 35. Kudos to you, my man. It was a great run. Obviously a great last five years on these Warrior teams that were certainly all-time great teams. So to you, he's my hero of the week. And my zero of the week is going to go to Major League Baseball. And the reason being is because for them not to allow the Mets, and it's not an issue about the Mets people because the bigger picture, it's about the NYPD, the FDNY. Why could they not commemorate those two law enforcement agencies to have them wear their hats on the field? They did allow them to wear them in batting practice. So for... Three more hours, another nine innings or nine innings plus, however long the game would have gone. Why couldn't they just say, the heck with it, wear them, definitely pay honor, homage to those who that we have lost during that terrible tragedy 18 years ago. But no, we'll have a players weekend where, like I said a few weeks ago, the uniforms for the road team, they look like Michael Myers. And for the home team, they look like they're ready to sell ice cream out of a truck back in the 1950s. So... MLB, get it together. That was just a bad move on your part. Let them wear it, even if the Yankees were home, uh, even if they're on the road. But I understand more so the road team if they're in New York, whether you're the Mets or the Yankees, if, just let them wear the hats, please. If you let them wear it during batting practice, why can't you wear them during the game? I, I don't understand that. So hopefully they get that fixed. And to me, that's just silly. So shame on them. They're my zero of the week. All right, and that'll be it for me for this week on the podcast. Thank you so much again for downloading and listening to what it is I have to babble about what's happening in the world of sports. And, of course, a couple of things on the way out. One, all my social media accounts, you can certainly follow me there. If you haven't followed me already, you could go to Instagram at jreels. You could go to Twitter, jreels1, just a number. Also, my fan page at the jreels podcast on Facebook. You can also send me an email at the jreels podcast at gmail.com or hit me up on my inboxes on any of the aforementioned social media accounts. Please, any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, I'm open to it, people. Please do so. I implore you to do that, as well as to subscribe, leave a review, post a rating on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, iHeartRadio. I'm on all those, or wherever you get them, Player FM, CastBox. I know there's a zillion of them. Uh, The reason why I ask you is because with your participation, just for everybody else in the podcast universe to kind of see that the J Reels podcast does exist. And the more subscribers, the more ratings, reviews, etc., all that's going to do is generate interest for those who may I may be able to get on the program, whether it's former or current athletes, writers, broadcasters, bloggers, etc. And, of course, that's just going to spike interest amongst all the other sports podcasts, let alone regular podcasts that are out there. So if you could just go ahead and do that, I'm forever grateful and thankful for your participation in doing so. As I deliver everything that's happening in the world of sports, whether it's on the diamond, whether it's on the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.